Jesus. All right. Open your Bibles, if you would, at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Um, I hope you're finding the study profitable, um, finding it encouraging it. I also hope that you're reading along. Uh, I do appreciate all those who have responded, especially last week. Um, I, I went to a couple of folks and actually solicited responses uh, just because of what had gone on Saturday night and uh, wanted to make sure I had communicated well and hadn't misjudged what I was capable of um, regarding the schedule. So I just really appreciate the feedback that I got. Um, and this in general, I always appreciate it when I can have a sense of how well people are, are what, what we're doing here is ministering to you from the Word. I would say, however, if this is the only exposure you're getting to the Word of God, uh, what we do here on Sunday morning, if this is your only exposure, you're seriously undernourished, right? We need to be in his word. We need his word in us. And I just can't encourage you enough to throughout the week, whether you're reading along in whatever passage we're dealing with on Sunday or you have your own reading schedule or both. Um, one, one of the things we talked about at Men's Breakfast yesterday um, was uh, the process of rumination, you know, like a, a cow or a moose. You know, eat something, and then it swallows it, and it brings it back up, and chews on it for a while, and swallows it, and brings it. It doesn't sound very appetizing, I know, but we wouldn't have steak if it wasn't for that process. So it's got to be worthwhile, right? Well, that's the same thing we need to be about with his word. We need to be consuming it, bringing it back up, thinking about it, dwelling on it, singing about it, finding a way to bring it to our thoughts, because that's where our growth really comes from. And so I hope that what happens here on Sunday encourages you to do that. We are talking in, uh, about the Gospel of, of Mark, and we're talking about the calling of Matthew, also known as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And um, if you've been watching The Chosen, as many of us have, you know this is a big issue, the calling of Matthew. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that this morning. But we're in Mark chapter 2, beginning in the 14th verse, or rather the 13th verse. Mark chapter 2, Verse 13, and he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him as he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came about that as he was reclining at table in his house, many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. But when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, thank you so much for this moment uh, in the Gospels. Lord, we know it was important, Lord. And it speaks so much to us. We simply pray that our hearts and minds would be open to your word uh, in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a, a moment in the Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'll talk about it. It's covered by all three of them. Pretty much the same thing is said. Um, it's, it's a lot discussed in the church because it's, a, it's an event that does kind of beg certain questions. And so we, we talk about it a lot. Normally, our discussion about the calling of Matthew or Levi... Uh, revolves around what's not there, like a lot of information we'd like to have. We don't have any of what we might call the backstory, right? What, what happened prior to Jesus saying to Matthew, did any, we don't know. 
And so there's a lot of discussion uh, about that, right? None of, none of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, talk about it. It's, it's kind of a, it has all the appearance of a cold call. You know, when the phone rings and you, you answer it and it's the, it's the salesman and he says, hey, John, I've been meaning to call you. I just wanted to touch base with you, you know, so on and so forth, like the guy knows you. It's like, I don't know this guy, you know. I don't know if you want to renew that subscription. I don't have a subscription, right, you know. Those, you know, you don't know the guy from Adam. Well, that's kind of what it looks like. Like Jesus doesn't know Matthew from, you know, the man on the moon. And yet Matthew responds. So it really, it really catches our attention. In fact, in the text, if you, Jesus didn't even use his name. He didn't even say, hey, you. He just said, follow me. And he does. And that really raises a lot of questions for us. Um, usually when, when, you know, the commentaries or whoever writes about this, they come up with two explanations about the backstory. What happened before that moment when Jesus called Matthew? One is, one of the two explanations, and this is the route the chosen goes, um, is that there is a back, there is contact between the two of them, either between Matthew and Jesus or the disciples and Matthew, or there's some contact that had been going on that set the stage, that prepared the way so that when Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, boom, he went, right? And that's all perfectly healthy. I mean, nothing wrong with it's speculative, it doesn't say it in, in, in Scripture, but it's perfectly healthy exercise to think about that, process that, what did it look like, you know, use our imagination, as long as we're mindful that it is speculative. It's not part of the text. If it was meant to be part of the text, it would be there, but it's not. So it's a healthy exercise, but it's, it's you know, it's not the Scriptures. The other explanation is like the opposite, which is nunzo, no contact. Um, Jesus is just walking down the street and he sees Matthew in the tax collecting booth and says, follow me. And based nothing over, other than on the authority of Jesus' word, Matthew follows, boom, right? Um, that's equally plausible. From the text, you can argue either one equally. Now, because Capernaum wasn't all that big, um, there's a, a scholar by the name of Rittenbauer. He's, a, he's an architectural archaeologist, and he likes to recreate ancient cities, you know, at least hypothetically what they look like. Uh, he's calculated Capernaum to be about the size of five football fields. He thinks that about 300 meters stretched along the beach of the Sea of Galilee, and then it went back about 200 meters, so you know, five to six football fields. Uh, along the beach is where you know, like all the boats were and everything else connected with fishing because that's what made Capernaum tick was fishing. The whole economy was based on fishing. So the front was where all the fishing activity was and then you had the houses. Uh, it was kind of the opposite of, of our world. You know, normally like the really nice houses or the water, beachfront houses, that was the opposite there. Um, maybe it was due to the fishing activity. Um, and what goes along with a lot of fishing. You know, that the nicer houses were all the way at the back of town. And so the front was the fishing, and then all the, the houses of the people involved in fishing, and then the middle of the town would have been like the synagogue and the public buildings and that kind of stuff. And again, the rich folks, they lived in the back up on the hillside. So, but it wasn't a big, really big town. So you would think that it would be difficult for Matthew to have never heard of him. So whether you think there was a lot of contact and the disciples had said things and Jesus had talked, or whether you think there was no contact or something in the middle, that's all healthy in that, we can think about it, and it helps us round out the picture in our mind. What isn't healthy is if we let that distract us from the really important thing. And the really important thing 
isn't that Jesus talked to Matthew before or not, or his disciples talked to him before. The really amazing thing is that Jesus called him at all. You know, our Lord did some pretty shocking things when he was walking with the disciples. I mean, apart from, like, you know, raising the dead and those kind of things, right? Um, he, he healed on the Sabbath. He, um, he touched lepers. He interacted with women. He, um, he just did all kinds of things that were just totally outside the, the margins of what a rabbi was supposed to do, what any decent good Jew would do. So, you know, he did a lot of shocking things, but I would suggest that of all the things Jesus did, perhaps nothing was as shocking to his followers and those who saw it, others who, others who saw it, as him calling Matthew, him calling this tax collector. Let's just go through the text, and I think I think you can see what I'm talking about. Verse 13, he went out again by the seashore, and the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So he was staying in Capernaum. We'd already talked about he'd set up temporary residence there. He moved through the city, and he was moving out to one of the two you know, sides of the village where there would have been open beach, and he could have talked to the crowd, and the crowd is coming them. Downtown, or the beachfront part, would have been pretty crowded and pretty busy, right? Um, so he's teaching off to one side or the other, and verse 14, as he passed by, evidently returning from whatever you know, teaching session was, he passes by this booth and he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And he identifies, he doesn't identify Levi as a tax collector, but rather he identifies him as being in the tax collector's booth. Mark and Luke are more direct. He was a tax collector at Telonis. Now, there, was, there were a lot of different kinds of taxes that the Romans had. Um, what they didn't have was a straight income tax. Well, I guess that's good. But they taxed about everything else, right? They would tax you on your land. They would tax you on your business. They would tax you um, if you were hauling any kind of merchandise into town or out of town. They taxed you both ways, right? If you made a profit on anything, they would tax you on that. So it was more like business-oriented taxes, but they taxed on virtually everything. And the key thing is they had what was, they used a process called tax farming. You ever hear that? Tax farming? And in the tax farming system, the Roman government would assign to the tax collector how much money the tax collector would be responsible to hand over to the government. But it was entirely at the discretion of the tax collector what he actually charged people. See, that's, there's his profit margin. The income for the tax collector would be whatever he elevated above the level of what was actually owed, and that was completely at the tax collector's dis discretion. Whatever they could get away with, they could charge. It's called tax farming, right? And because of this, because of this, Matthew as a tax collector, Levi as a tax collector, would have been despised. Now, we, again, if you, if you read anything about this incident or anything about the calling of Matthew, you'll read he was hated, he was despised, you know, whatever other word you want to put there. But I don't know that any of those words are really adequate to describe how the typical Jew would have felt about a tax collector, right? They were the absolute worst of Jewish society. I mean, you just think about the phrase that we see repeated again and again, tax collectors and sinners. They didn't even put tax collectors in the same category as sinners. They were a whole other category all to themselves, right? Um, a couple of examples from the Gospels that I think can give us an idea just how people felt about them. In uh, Luke 18, 
Jesus is talking about the danger of trusting in one's own righteousness, how that was a really bad idea. And he tells a parable that we probably all know. He tells a parable about two guys who go to the temple to pray. Okay? So he, he's warning people about the danger of trusting in your own righteousness, right? And so he uses two people in this parable. He uses a Pharisee and a murderer. No. Pharisee and an adulterer. No. Pharisee and an international terrorist. No. He uses a Pharisee and a tax collector. So Jesus is setting up this parable to talk about the danger of trusting in your own righteousness, and look who he puts in juxtaposition. A Pharisee, they were the paragon of righteousness in the eye. And remember, he's using people's perspective. He's not talking about his. He's talking about in the parable, to make the parable work, he's using their perspective. In the perspective of the typical Jew, the Pharisee was the apex of righteousness. They were even above the high priest, because everybody knew the high priests were kind of political and had been corrupted. So, but the Pharisees, the people held in extremely high regard because of their overwhelming effort at being righteous. They were really serious about the law. They were serious about keeping the law. So you got the Pharisees up there, and at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the tax collector. Listen to, we all know how the tax collector prayed, right? If you know the parable, the tax collector wouldn't even come close to, you know, to the temple. He stood at a distance, he bowed his head, said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a really good prayer. This guy, you know, he got an A in theology. For, he may have been a tax collector, but he knew how to pray, right? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But listen to how the Pharisee prays. He, the Pharisee stood, this is Jesus telling the parable, the Pharisee stood and began praying in this regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Interesting phrase, even this tax collector. That phrase, even this, that's only attached to tax collectors. That's like a special label they carry. Or how about uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, 46? Warning his followers about the futility of thinking, you know, he said you should love other people, and then he said you should love those who hate you and use you. And he said, you know, if you only love those who love you back, what's that, right? And he says this, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. So their name, they were just literally a pariah. They were the epitome, the archetype of what it was to be evil. They were the worst. Because they worked for the Romans, they had betrayed their country, their countrymen, they had betrayed their family. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, that stung. Now, I think most of you know that when we were in Greece, I had the privilege of experiencing the Greek legal system. Got to spend my night in jail, go through an abbreviated kind of a trial experience. It was very educational, right? But one of the most shocking moments for me emotionally was when they called me up for my case, and they wanted to make sure they had the right, you know, Yanis Monopoulos. They said, uh, John Monopoulos, son of Nicholas. And it hit me. I wasn't the only Monopoulos on, in that courtroom. I had drugged my whole family in. And it wasn't just a matter of, you know, my maybe going to jail. That was real. Um, but the disgrace and the dishonor I would bring to my family, you know. Isn't that great? Go to Greece to help, you know, spread the gospel. And you discredit and dishonor your family along the way. That was not what I wanted. That was a very sobering moment to know 
that because of it was just a mistake I had made, um, didn't have the right paper, um, but I was in a place where I could dishonor my family. These guys had discredited their family in a culture where that was extremely critical. They were thieves. I remember the tax farming system. They were able to add as much as they wanted to what the Romans said you will collect, and they added a lot. They were regarded as thieves, right? I think it's really hard in our imagination to um, come up with a parallel to understand just the depth of um, animosity. Um, the only example I can come up with, if you're familiar with the, um, the capos of World War II, some of you may know about those, you know, most of what the Jews in the concentration camps experienced, they did not experience at the hands of Germans. Most of their suffering was at the hands of other Jews. Because they just, the, the Germans, they didn't want to dedicate any more guards to the camps than they had to. They had to war to fight. And they used the minimum number of German soldiers possible. All of the administration of the camp, all of the handling of the prisoners, especially the Jewish prisoners, was relegated to Jewish guards, and they were hated. They were, they were involved to the point that when, when Jewish prisoners were being moved into the gas chambers, it was the capos that moved them. When their bodies were being removed from the gas chambers, it was the capos that did that. One capo on trial, it was testified that he had actually gone so far as to bend the one that placed the noose around the neck of another Jew. They were hated. After World War II, when the state of Israel was created, they went so far as to pass a law to empower Israel, Israel passed a law to empower their intelligence services to scour the globe. National boundaries meant nothing. They would scour the globe to look for capos that had escaped Germany and made it to other countries. And ironically, um, it is that law under which Adolf Eichmann was captured and tried and executed even though he certainly wasn't a capo. He was the mastermind of the final solution. That's how intense the Jewish feelings were, and I think we can appreciate that. That degree of betrayal of your countrymen, well, that's pretty much how Matthew would have been viewed. Despised in every, every sense of the word, hated. Verse 14, Jesus sees him sitting there and without hesitation calls out, follow me. Now just put yourself in the disciples. You're walking along with Jesus. You're hanging on his every word. And as you, as you approach the tax collector's booth, and you see Matthew out of the corner of your eye, do your thoughts start to stray? You hate this man. You hate everything he represents. Yeah, you've seen the miracles. You've heard all the teaching of Jesus, and you're really trying to focus on the really great stuff. But there's that guy out of the corner of your eye that you have every reason to loathe his very existence. Do you try to turn your eyes away from him so that you won't see him? Do you begin to think some unchristian thoughts, even before they had Christian thoughts? You know what I mean, right? Then you hear Jesus say, follow me. And you're wondering, who in the world is he talking to? No. Cannot be. Not Matthew. Mm -mm. And then you realize that's exactly who he is talking to. It would have been so much better if Matthew had left the tax office first, left it all behind first. That would have made it more palatable, but he doesn't. He's just sitting there. And Jesus says, follow me. Then he gets up 
leaves it all. Verse 15, it only gets worse. Oh, verse 15. It came about that as he was reclining at table in his house. Now, the phrase at table is not, not in the Greek text, but it's included there. It's, it's a perfectly reasonable transla translation to emphasize they were sitting for a meal. And if you know anything about you know, the culture of the New Testament, there wasn't a table involved. The Romans used tables. Jews didn't use tables. Jews would gather around, if anything, a low platform on the floor. And they would either sit on the floor or if they could do so comfortably, they would like, you know, lay on their side and kind of recline. Well, this is a full formal banquet. When you put Matthew and, and Luke alongside this, uh, Luke especially uh, helps us to see this is a full spread, right, that's set out for Jesus and for all the other tax collectors and sinners, because that's what it says, the tax collectors and sinners are there. And Jesus is reclining with them. He is in this comfortable, very personal, we might even say intimate moment with this big crowd of tax collectors and sinners. And, and, and how are they sitting now? Remember, we're trying to see this from the perspective of the disciples, right? And, and most of them were not wealthy. So when they ate at home, they might be fortunate enough to have like a mat or something to put down. What do they look at? They walk into Matthew's house, what do they see? For most of them, they had probably never been in a house like this before. Have anybody ever been to Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California? If you have, it's ridiculous. If you ever want to know how the other one hundredth of one percent lives, go to Hearst Castle in California. It is ridiculous. I was about ten when my parents took me there. It was William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper guy. He builds this. You can't call it a house. But it's on the coast, about halfway between L.A. and San Francisco. It's where he went to get away from it all, you know. I'll just say this. The, the, the place had 60 bathrooms. 60 bathrooms, you know. Had three Olympic-sized pools, one of which is in the house, right? It's ridiculous. And I remember walking through the house, and it was like a 10-year-old kid thinking, where did all this money come from? And then, of course, my dad said, the guy sold a lot of newspapers, right? Okay, well, that makes sense. They're standing in Matthew's house, and they're looking at people laying on like, ooh, does that rug come from Persia? Right? And these nice, cushy pillows. I mean, it's the lap of luxury. And the walls are beautifully decorated. It's a glorious home. He's among the wealthy in Capernaum. And you ask yourself, where did this money come from? Oh, that's right, yeah. That rug came from the tax he overcharged me. Well, me and several others. And the cushions from, that was my cousin when he ripped him off, you know. And you're going down the list of all the money that you know this tax collector took from all the people you know. And it's, it's just there in your gut, right? Verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, which would have been a really elite group, the Pharisees who were the elite of the righteous, and then they had their own scribes. We've talked about scribes before. They ask, why? Why is your rabbi eating with, with, with tax collectors and sinners? Um, they're actually more furious than, than, than questioning, right? This isn't Jesus having a meal with some homeless person, right? I can, I can handle that. But now he is with the absolute dregs of 
society. Imagine if you will. I mean, pull it. Imagine you look in a window and there's Jesus having dinner, and I don't mean like over a table. I mean he's just really getting comfortable with a bunch of drug dealers. Or worse, you can fill in the blank. Your prioritization of, you know, the wickedest of the wicked. There's Jesus just having a grand old time, casually eating away with society that you would be caught dead with. No matter how gracious we are, we all have in our conscience that group of people that we wouldn't be caught dead with. And yet that who Jesus is who Jesus is dining with. So the Pharisees turn and they ask the disciples, why is he doing this? Think about this for a second. Jesus and the tax collectors and the sinners and some of the disciples are laying on the floor eating. Right? Everybody eating is laying around a table or tables, right? The Pharisees would not have been in the building. There are no circumstances under which the Pharisees would have gone into that house. So, and if you watch, if you watch the, the Chosen, they do it really well. They have them standing outside the window, which is pretty accurate. That's where the Pharisees would have been. So when the Pharisees asked the disciples, why is your teacher doing this? Where are the disciples in that moment? I think, you know, again, the Chosen does a really good job. It has them standing just inside the window, right? That's all a pretty reasonable reconstruction. What that tells me is there were some disciples who when they saw Jesus sit down to eat a really nice meal, the food was absolutely exquisite, I'm sure, to eat a really nice meal with all these ungodly sinners and tax collectors, that they got down there with them. But there were other disciples who stood back. Not me. I'm going to be in the house, but I'm going to be back by the wall. I'm going to stand back. Those would have been the ones the Pharisees were talking to. Can you tell me why your master is doing this? And they don't have a word. They don't have an answer. They do not know, they do not understand any better than the Pharisees. The question's being asked, and the text makes it clear the question was asked repeatedly. Why, why, why? And they do not have an answer. They just saw him, within the last few days, reach out and touch a leper. Right? That, so that they were, they were okay with that, but now he's dining with a tax collector, and that does not work. And to those standing next to the Pharisees, this was as confusing as it was to the Pharisees. Verse 17, Jesus hearing this said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And that's the best thing I've read in a long time. Jesus did not come to call righteous. He came to call sinners. And that's why he called Matthew. And that's why he called me. This is the beauty of the gospel. You see, the Jews had been taught, and ironically, a lot of Jews still think this way. The Jews had been taught that the Messiah would not come until the Jewish people were good enough. They had to up their game. They had to be so good at keeping the law that God would say, okay, now I can send the Messiah. That was their worldview. Live up to this standard, and then the Messiah will show up. That is not the game plan Jesus was using at all. No, he didn't come for people that were good enough. He came for a people that would never be good enough. Jesus just blows that idea up completely. And that's the beauty of the gospel, and that is what gives any one of us hope. He came to call us in the very same sense he called Matthew. 
You know, there's a twofold tragedy, I think, that plagues us as believers. I mean, this is great news for the unbeliever. If you're here this morning and, and th- this doesn't apply to you, you need to make the decision that it will apply. You need to reach out in faith. Say, Jesus, I want that shed blood that we celebrated to apply to my life. I'm going to be one of those wretched ones you called out of sin into your marvelous life. That's you. You talk to me afterwards. Talk to Pastor Joyce. But for the disciples especially, this is a two, there's a two-fold element to this, this storyline. It's tragic. One, we fail to see just how far Jesus was and is willing to go to save the lost. We're not willing to see just how far into the depths he would reach because that means coming to terms with how far he had to reach to get us. And until you're comfortable with the idea that Jesus had to reach to the very bottom of the barrel to get Matthew, and in the same way he had to reach the very bottom of the barrel to get me, then we will never get to that point that we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or, I, I, I don't think too many of us suffer with that one. I think most of us have enough self-awareness that we know what kind of a piece of work we were. But what happens more often, I think, is having come to him in faith, having come to the fact that he accepted me in all of my sin, in all of my unworthiness, the fact that I had absolutely nothing to offer him except the answer, yes, when he called. Okay. Having done that, when I step in a relationship with him, it is so easy to revert back to the old kind of thinking that I have to be good enough. Now that he's accepted me, I have to be good enough. Well, good enough for what? If you ever find yourself stepping into that kind of thinking, that as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, I need to be good enough, finish the sentence. Good enough for what? What's the standard? What are we striving for? We come to Christ knowing that he loves us and he paid the full price for our redemption. There was, not, there was no inadequacy in him found. The blood he shed was all sufficient. So why do we live like it wasn't? Like we somehow have to measure up. That is a game we will never win. That's a deal we will never complete. That's a plan that will never work. Rather than living day by day with a complete sense of abandonment to our absolute need for him. That's where freedom is found. We sang about freedom this morning. Jesus' calling of Matthew tells me more than anything. Well, it tells me two things. It tells me just how far Jesus will go to save the lost, that there is no one beyond his reach. But it also tells me that I can live day by day with a complete sense of, I said, utter abandonment. There is nothing adequate in me at all. And that's fine. I'm really okay with that. Because I have a Savior who is more than adequate. And he has credited his adequacy to the record of my life. Here's the benefit. When we really grasp this sense of total dependence, 
it makes it possible for us to see the rest of humanity the way he does. When I become comfortable with my total and complete dependence on him for my adequacy, then I have the freedom to not only relax and breathe, but then I can begin to see the rest of humanity the way he does. Just somebody in need of Jesus. Father, I thank you, Lord. Father, we live in a society that in so many ways, uh, we look at it, uh, if, you, if we watch the news for two minutes, Lord, it can be terrifying, because we see so many things shaking around us, and um, we see social trends that can be deeply, deeply disturbing, Father, and our experiences, Father, with people can sometimes be deeply disturbing as we see the values eroding around us, Lord. And it, it can't, Father, it scares us sometimes, but Lord, we know that no matter what depth a person has gone to, and so, Father, by that same logic, no matter what depth a culture has gone to, never are we beyond the redemptive power of the cross. Never are we beyond the reach of the blood. So, Father, we thank you first and foremost. We thank you for the promise we have of the complete and total adequacy. Everything we need, Father, found in the cross. Everything we need found in the shed blood. And we pray, Father... And Lord, we acknowledge that this is kind of a hard thing for us sometimes, hard for me, um, to be as open and honest as embracing with those around us who need you as you were with us. We need your help to that end, Lord. To be a body of people, to be individuals who genuinely embrace the worst. We need your help. So, Father, we look to you to do that in our lives as we would serve you and follow Jesus. In his name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord this morning.